Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. and welcome back to an all-new episode of The Irish Passport, where, Naomi, it's getting close to Christmas. Have you started Christmas shopping yet? Uh, please don't remind me. You're going to stress me out, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I've done some. Listen. I've done some. Listen, no, this this is a common a common response to that, a stress response to the question, <laughs> have you done your Christmas shopping yet? But, Naomi, you know what would make this stressful Christmas period a lot less stressful? Mm-hmm. What? By buying yourself the gift of a subscription to the Irish Passport Patreon, oh, which you can find. That's where this is going. <laughs> Very good. That's where this is going, which you can find at www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport and where you can get loads and loads of extra content and think about how much nicer all of that busy Christmas shopping will be with hours and hours of the Irish Passport extra content in your earphones guiding you all the way. <laughs> you can even put it in when you're traveling. Lots of people are traveling around this time of year. <laughs> So treat yourself, treat yourself to an Irish Passport subscription. Annoyingly, Patreon doesn't actually provide a way yet to gift a subscription to somebody else. Otherwise, you could actually use it as presents, which would be a fantastic present. But everyone deserves a little stocking filler for themselves. So go on, check it out. Check it out and see if you'll treat yourself this year. <laughs> Let's get to the episode. Right. This is one of our Christmas episodes where we are telling some of our favourite stories that we've heard during the year mm-hmm. and sharing them with you. So it's the kind of episode to get yourself a glass of mulled something and get cozy and we're just going to have a casual chat where we tell each other our favourite stories of 2022. Naomi, why don't you hit me first? What have you? I, I have no idea, by the way, listeners, what, what Naomi has, has gone and looked up. So yes. tell me, what, what's your story? My first story that I have for you, Tim, is related to the World Cup. Okay, no. I, you're, actually, I can hear the dread creeping into your voice. You're like, no, <laughs> not sports ball. <laughs> you, may, you may have to explain some of the like most foundational and basic concepts of uh, what, what football is. It doesn't require, it re- genuinely doesn't require it. The World Cup, the major soccer okay. football championship of the world. None of none of this story requires you to know anything about it, apart from that it's an important international competition that's taking place right now in Qatar, and okay. a lot of oh, people watch now it. already. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's happening now. Yeah. It seems to be happening all the time. I can mm. never tell when it's on or off because nobody ever shuts up about it. Anyway, like go on. every four years. Anyway, so um, they're <laughs> Argentina are doing pretty well, and a member of their team became something of a hero in a match the other day because he scored the, their first goal in a match that they absolutely had to win against Poland. Now, this mm, okay. this player, he got attention for scoring the goal, but not just that. He also caught a lot of people's notice for his surname. So this player's name is Alexis McAllister. Aha, okay. Argentina, you say? Yes, he's from Argentina. He's playing for the Argentinian Good Argentinian National. name. Yes. That's what a lot of people thought. They scratched their heads and they thought, <laughs> that's an interesting one for Argentina, McAllister. What's the story behind that? On top of the name, 
There's also his somewhat unusual colouring. Alexis McAllister has red hair. Mm -hmm. Indeed, Lionel Messi, who is a very uh, famous football player, Tim. Okay. He actually had to step in to intervene to stop teammates from calling poor Alexis Ginger. Oh, poor Alexis. And wait for it, he also has two brothers called Kevin and Francis. Okay, all right. So this is going somewhere. Alexis is a secret Irish implant. He's an <laughs> imposter. He, he showed up on the Argentinian team and nobody noticed for years and it just stayed like that. Is this where, where we're going here? Well, your, your radar for an Irish link is correct. Okay. Um, so it had been thought for some time that the family history of the McAllister family and the story of that surname had been lost to time. But all of this changed, Tim, in 1995. Okay. 1995 was the year when the Irish Labour politician Dick Spring, do you remember him? Of from, course. From yeah. How could times. you forget a name like that? Yeah. <laughs> he visited Argentina in 1995. And on this mm. visit, a photograph was taken of him visiting a local hurling club in Buenos Aires. So he visited a hurling club in the Buenos Aires neighborhood of Hurlingham, funnily enough. <laughs> and this photograph was published in the Irish Times. It was a photo, it showed Dick Spring shaking hands with the club secretary of the local Buenos Aires hurling club, whose name was Dickie McAllister. Okay. So back in Ireland, this photograph that appeared in the Irish Times was spotted by a guy in Dublin called Frank. Mm. Frank McAllister, in fact. And he was living in the northeast Dublin town of Dunabate. Do you know Dunabate? Uh, not really, no. It's in, yeah. it's in, in the north of Dublin. So okay. Fra this Frank McAllister, he had always heard about this sort of mythical family story that there were Argentine McAllisters. And he saw this picture in the paper of a hurling club in Buenos Aires with a secretary whose surname was, was McAllister. And he thought... Could this be my cousin or something? Who Could this be one of the Argentine <laughs> McAllisters? So he took a shot in the dark and he wrote a letter to Dickie McAllister, the guy that was pictured with Dick Spring. He wrote to him oh, over there in Buenos oh Aires and he basically just asked them if they could be related. And he got a letter back. And Dickie McAllister responded that he didn't know actually that much about his Irish roots. But what he did have was a photograph and the photograph was of where his great-great-grandfather had come from in Ireland. Oh. So a copy of the photograph was shared with the Frank McAllister in Dublin, and it showed his cottage in Dunabate. It was the very same McAllister homestead. No. <laughs> yes. Well, sorry, was, was Frank McAllister still living there? Yeah. They were living in Dunnerbate and this was the family cottage. And he, he, he sent him back a picture of his own house of his own and house. said, that's where my grandfather lived. Yes, exactly. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sorry, go on. So um, Dickie McAllister in Buenos Aires, he was actually interviewed about this um, by Keith Duggan of the Irish Times in 2002. And he said, so this guy in Dublin sees my name in the paper and says, oh my God, this is a shot in the dark. And he writes me a letter and that is how I find my Irish relatives. So um, this story was written up recently by Owen Harrington of Balls.ie, which is a sports uh, website. 
And mm. he actually spoke to another McAllister. This is the cousin of Frank, actually, whose name is Philip McAllister. He's from Meath himself, and right now he's living in Madrid. Okay, so he's Hispanophone, we have to assume. So this Philip, originally from Meath, he's actually grown to be this link between the McAllisters of Ireland and the McAllisters of Argentina. Um, so basically, he was able to fill in the blanks, and he says members of the McAllister family of Donabate left Ireland for Argentina in the middle of the 19th century pointing to famine years there. And Philip mm. himself, the guy who, the McAllister who lives in Madrid, he was traveling in Latin America in 2006. And that was when he began to track down these Argentinian connections. He got invited to a McAllister family reunion in Argentina. He told Bulls.ie the following. He said, I knock on the door in Argentina and the door opens to a whole big family of McAllisters, Dickies and Montserrat and Pablos and Elaines and Kevins and Michaels and Johns, the whole lot of them. The older generation were still alive and they all spoke English with a Dublin accent. The proof was that photo of the house. They had no idea. We had lost contact, they had lost contact, but this was the re rejoining of the family. I stayed there for three months hanging out with them. Fabulous people. That's what Philip told Bull's daddy. So since then, he's grown very close to them and he's become a bridge between the two families. That, oh, Naomi, that, I, my, I, like, I'm not making any noise, but my <laughs> mouth was just hanging open throughout all of that. That is just, it, I mean, it's, I think what strikes me is that it's so simple. It, that, yeah. that was just so easy. They just found them. And like, there's the house. Yeah, we still have Dublin accents. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's high cuz. I mean, they must be pretty closely related if they if they came yeah. from the same homestead. Yeah, I am sending you a picture now and I want okay. you to have a look at it, okay? I'm very excited. Okay. It's loading. My internet isn't great. So what we are about to see is a photograph of the father of the World Cup star, Alexis McAllister. So we're having a look at a photograph of, of Alexis's father, whose name is Carlos Javier McAllister. And I want you guys who are listening to also look at this photograph at the same time. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes because I want you to just enjoy this moment of seeing what Alexis's dad looks like. Okay, look at him. All right. Okay, go. Cool. Okay, so um, let me describe to you what what I'm seeing in this picture. Well, he's he's he has a lovely head of red hair on him. He's wearing a nice sports jumper, and it says uh, McAllister Carlos Javier. Yes, it's he's he's there. He he was a football player himself. So this is like a photograph he, he's taken playing for Boca Juniors. Um, he was actually a pretty successful footballer in his own right and also played for Argentina internationally. Um, but yeah, I mean, the most remarkable thing about it is like this guy looks like he could be a leash hurling player. I mean, like the guy has like <laughs> the signature, like palish pink skin and like very fair red hair. And it just looks like, like the least Argentinian person you could imagine. <laughs> I think the words Naomi are a uh, big Irish head in them. Yes, I think that is the technical term. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, in one way, you know, the discovery of the McAllister Irish connection with the revelation of the cottage being the same cottage, it, w it, was, a, it was a surprise and a reveal. But at the same time, mm -hmm. you probably didn't need to guess. <laughs> 
That's fantastic, Naomi. How, how, this was written up in the Irish Times, did you say? Oh, um, so the reunion kind of happened through reporting by the Irish Times because initially the Irish Times ran the photograph which led to the reunion, as you might recall. And right. then later there was an interview about it in like an Irish Times article in like 2002. But the most recent uh, story and retelling of it, which I've sort of summarised in, in this telling, was by Balls.ie, by Owen Harrington, who tracked down mm. the current link between the Irish and the Argentinian McAllisters, whose name is Philip and who's based in Madrid. That is amazing. So, Tim, I understand that you have a story for me. I do have a story for you. I have a story for you. And actually, it's, it's not a new story. It's definitely not a new story from 2022. But that's not my brief on the podcast. I'm supposed to handle history, right? A little <laughs> yeah. bit more than that. Um, I'm actually bringing us to 18, 1879, which is recent enough, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair enough. Right. <laughs> Only yesterday. And I'm actually bringing us back to this time last year, when we made an episode on uh, Knock. Do you remember that? We talked about Knock and the airport and all that. I remember the episode on Knock, yeah. yeah. Listen, the entire time we were talking about that, you know, we uh, it, was, it was another story time episode and I had the story about the airport and everything. And I kind of threw in the details about the apparition of the Virgin Mary at Knock in 1879. And there was this one huge detail that I just had to cut out completely that I wanted to talk about so much, but I knew it would take too much time. Mm-hmm. So it's been preying on me for exactly a year. And that is what I'm going to talk about now. Okay, great. Uh, I want to know okay. about it. Yeah. What is the detail okay. that was preying on your mind all that time? It's a pretty big one. It's okay. a pretty big one. And kind of controversial, actually. Oh. Um, So just to recap for our listeners who are not aware of this, in 1879, in the village, the County Mayo village of Knock, there was reportedly an apparition of the Virgin Mary on the south gable of a church wall. All right. It happened on a rainy night and it was witnessed first by a young woman called Mary Byrne and she was there with the priest's housekeeper. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, everyone who went to see the, um, went to see the vision uh, was quite connected to the priest, which maybe keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, about 25 people came out and, and ran and watched this vision and they watched for about two hours mm-hmm. and they all pretty much, as far as I can tell, they all pretty much swore until the day that they died, they saw this for real um, you, you know it was, they weren't making it up it, it wasn't a trick of the light or anything they saw the Virgin Mary now ever since the village of Naka kind of transformed with that we talked about the building of an airport in our last episode um, certainly there's a huge kind of industry a pilgrim industry ever since and there was multiple more than one anyway church inquiry to try and establish whether this was the real deal and the Catholic Church decided pretty early on that yep yeah, this is it it was the, a miracle. We, we have all of these witnesses. Mm. It was a miracle. They all saw it. Their stories hold up. We believed them. That was the actual Virgin Mary who came and appeared in Knock. Hmm. Hmm. Where to start with this? Okay. Right. No, I'm, I'm going to spring it on you, actually. Okay. <laughs> First of all, <laughs> let's take a look at what the witnesses actually saw. Okay. Okay. So the vision that they saw was made of light. They said it was a bright light and there was actually a farmer a few fields away who also saw the light. He said there was, I just, you know, I saw this light in the distance at the, around the same time. Mm. They also said that the, um, the vision was static. So they saw three figures in the vision. It was, uh, the Virgin Mary surrounded by St. Joseph Mm -hmm. and St. John the Evangelist. Okay. Okay. To the right of them was a little altar and on top of the altar was a cross and uh, a, a lamb and then around the lamb were some glittering lights that some of the witnesses described as angels okay 
everything was in white. Everything was in white, and all of the people were wearing white robes. And the the way that the witnesses were able to identify St. John the Evangelist, for mm-hmm. instance, was because of what he was wearing. He was wearing a mitre, which is the hat, you know, those kind of bishop's hat, yeah. hats, and in a style that was, like, typical of the Orthodox Church. Ooh. It was decided later. The church first set up a big inquiry uh, straight away in 1879, but we don't actually know really what went down in that uh, inquiry because most of the documents completely went missing, which is really, really annoying. They're just gone. We don't know like what, what kind of evidence they were weighing up or anything. The original witness actually survived until 1936, Mary Byrne, mm-hmm. um, and there was another inquiry that year in 1936. Now, if you think about 1936, this is mm-hmm. 50 years later, right? Right. But also at this stage, Ireland is independent and it's Dev's Ireland, right? Mm-hmm. It's like sliding deep, deep, deep into very, very kind of theocratic Catholic control. Um, you have, you know, these major bishops kind of appearing like Bishop McQuaid and stuff. Mm-hmm. And having a big inquiry like this in 1936 was, you know, it was not, it was certainly not a neutral uh, event. There was a lot of politics that kind of clung to this. Okay. It was the same back in 1879, because 1879 was the year of the beginnings of the land war. This is this agrarian uprising that was happening, particularly in County Mayo. This was kind of the epicenter of the land war, County Mayo. That's where mm-hmm. Boycott's house was, for instance. And the land war was being led by Protestants, remember. Protestants like Charles Stuart Parnell. So in, in both moments, there is this kind of strange political context to all this. So, laying aside for the moment the possibility that what happened in Knock was an actual miracle, I mean, that's a possibility, why not? Everything's possible. But let's lay that aside for the moment and presume that it wasn't. The question is, what did they see? What did these people see? What happened, right? I mean, like, there's a lot of witnesses here, 25 of them, between 11 and 88 years old. All mm-hmm. of them went to their deaths, swearing that they saw this. It's a very detailed image. Do you have an idea? Do you have a suggestion, Naomi? No, I, I don't know. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, in cases like this, you often have, like, mass delusion. That's that's possible, absolutely. But I don't know, I mean, it often feels like mass delusion is a bit of a catch-all term. It's a bit like finding artifacts and saying, oh, this was a religious artifact, you know? <laughs> like, like, mass delusion is powerful, but... Maybe a little bit of a quick get-out cause. Maybe it was a a deception. Maybe people kind of said, oh yeah, I see it too, I see it too. You know, that can happen when they weren't actually seeing anything. That would have been hard enough for people to keep secret for the rest of their lives, all of these people. Surely somebody would have said, it wasn't there, I didn't see it. You know, like they always do, usually in these cases, especially when there's so many of them. How many witnesses were in this case? At least 25. Mm. Uh, Some people say that it was a trick of the light bouncing off the church windows. Now, this brings into the the frame the timing of all this. Mm -hmm. Um, So the reports were very specific that this all started at 8pm in August. It's August. So in Ireland at 8pm in August, it's not dark yet. Mm -hmm. It's sunset time. It's beginning to get dark, but it takes another like two hours to get properly dark in Ireland in in August. So it it started during the daylight. Now that's actually quite significant. Uh, But if it was the daylight that would support this idea of the sunlight, the setting sun maybe bouncing off the, the church and making shapes. 
but I'm not convinced by that either because surely that would have happened again. You know, these people lived here like all their lives. They didn't really go anywhere else. They just, they went to the church every Sunday, if not every day and mm-hmm. every feast day. They would have seen all kinds of sun, you know, bouncing off the windows of the church, you know, like, the, you know, the, surely that wouldn't have been so convincing. But, you know, whatever. There is one other huge theory. Immediately when the news came out of Knock that the Virgin Mary had appeared on the wall of a church, people started saying, I know what that was. Oh, really? And what were they saying? It was a projector. I'm letting that sink in. (laughs) A projector like you would use in a classroom. But Tim, what are you saying? Like, are you saying there's someone going around unbeknownst projecting things up in Knock on the side of the church? Pretty much. (laughs) Okay, listen. Okay, bear with me. Projectors did exist at this point. They were known still as magic lanterns. These kind of uh, contraptions called magic lanterns have existed for hundreds of years. Uh, But at this point, just around the second half of the 19th century, projectors had become quite portable and accessible. Uh, So I'm going to actually send you an image of one. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm sending you an advertisement for one of these magic lanterns from the mid 1880s. So you could describe to me what you see in this ad. Okay, so I'm seeing an ad which looks like an old newspaper and it says magic lanterns and dissolving view apparatus slides and effects of the highest class. And it's advertising that this is the sole maker of the registered triple lantern and the Eswick Paraffins photogenic lanterns. And it gives the prices of being quite expensive, ranging between uh, £3.10, I think, to £10. Um, and that prices for triple lanterns were up to £100, so really very expensive. It's saying where you can get them, which is an address in uh, London. And the, there's an illustrated um, like engraving or image of them. And it looks like it's very steampunk kind of image. So... There's Mm. three layers, I suppose, each one looking a little bit like a camera with a big lens. And you can see at the top there is an apparatus that would allow you to place a slide in. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a a pretty cool contraption. So that's a triple one. So you can imagine Mm -hmm. a single one would actually be fairly small. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, that price from three to ten. So I, I looked up the conversions from 1879 and that would have, if you multiply by 100, mm-hmm. basically you get what we are now. So between 300 and 1,000 euros you can get yeah. one for. Uh, so, you know, accessible. Not accessible for many people from this place. Now, to put this in perspective, in an article that I'm going to talk about in a minute, there was a mention that in 1936, there's a story of an American tourist bringing a gramophone to knock. Mm-hmm. And the people were so confused that they were walking around trying to figure out where the voices were coming from. Okay, because they weren't familiar with the... That's how alien that technology was to them in 1936. Mm -hmm. So in 1879, you know, even though these things existed in London and in Dublin and maybe in bigger towns, uh, in places like this, places like this were pre-industrial. I mean, they were more remote than we can really imagine uh, today. Uh, So... Listen, this is a huge theory. It's It was such a big theory that it was even actually mentioned in James Joyce's Dubliners in one of the oh, stories. Really? Hold on. When's the first mention of it? You're saying that it's contemporaneous to the reporting yes. of the sightings themselves. Okay. Yes. Now, before I go any further, I better mention the article that I got most of this information from. It's a great article uh, that brings together all of the different theories that were put over uh, during the years. 
Uh, it's by a guy called Paul Carpenter. And it's an article called Mimesis, Memory and the Magic Lantern. What did the knock witnesses see? Mm-hmm. And uh, you can read that article for yourselves, guys. You can find it in the New Hibernia Review and they have it up on JSTOR. So you can access that um, for free if you have a JSTOR account. Right. So this, yeah, came out straight away. Right. It started with uh, journalists. There was this descent of journalists from all over the country into knock to when this happened, trying mm-hmm. to scoop the story. And a lot of the journalists started saying, hold on, dude, like this is probably um, a magic lantern. Uh, So first of all, there was a Limerick journalist. He recorded that the light was semicircular in shape. Mm -hmm. And that's how magic lantern projections looked at the time. They were semicircular. Um, Another journalist from the Tume News, he recorded straight away in 1880 that it was flickering. The light was flickering. And that's how magic lantern lights looked. So how these things work is you put um, an oil lamp or limelight or some kind of light source inside like the camera obscura, right? Inside the box of the camera. And then it reflects against a mirror. And then the mirror is reflected into a like telescopic lens, basically. And that projects it onto a wall. They're not very powerful, but they were getting better. There's loads of things to take into account here. Let's look at the testimonies. I've just plucked two testimonies uh, that we still have from Mm -hmm. the original witnesses. So this first one is from an 11-year-old boy called Patrick Hill. And he wrote, It was a clear white light covering most of the gable from the ground up to the window and higher. It was kind of a changing bright light going sometimes up high and again not so high. I saw angels hovering the whole time. I saw their wings fluttering. And this is from Mary Byrne, the original witness. She says, The Virgin Mary was life-sized. The others apparently either not so big or not so high as her figure. Mm-hmm. They stood a little distance out from the gable wall, with a foot and a half or two feet from the ground. I saw the golden stars or small brilliant lights glittering like jets or glass balls, reflecting the light of some luminous body. So, like, from these descriptions, it sounds really like a magic lantern, right? It just really sounds like um, this was a magic lantern. And there are some people who were just convinced of this. This kind of died away, by the way, after the first church inquiry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Accusations of magic lanterns kind of disappeared suddenly when the church had said, no, this is a miracle. So everyone stopped talking about magic lanterns. Maybe they thought it was heresy a bit. Maybe they were just a bit, you know, didn't want to go against the church too much. Or maybe they thought case closed, right? There was a guy sent out. We know the church was aware of this too. They went to Maynooth University, um, or what it was then. And they got a guy called Lenin, Dr. Francis Lenin, I think his name was. Mm -hmm. And he was like an expert in lighting, basically. Okay. They got him to go to Knock and to try and replicate a magic lantern. Yes. Take your magic lanterns and like do it again. Annoyingly, we lost, we have lost all of the documents of what actually happened. So we only know he did this from secondary reports that only mention it in passing, mm-hmm. as if we know what he did, you know. Um, but it turns out he said, no, not possible. This just right. isn't possible. What he said was, uh, basically, the church is on a bit of a hill. So if you put a, like, hid the magic lantern in the grass, let's say, a little while away, mm-hmm. then it would be under the church. And that would mean when you walk past the light beam that you would cast a shadow. Mm on the wall right because it would be like yeah you're walking in the way of the beam it has to be higher up and beaming down so he said no it didn't happen but he said he was convinced it was fake though uh he said this might have been phosphorescent paint 
on the walls but that doesn't seem very likely either like who cleaned it off you know this is like when did they put it up like yeah a few decades later this kind of came up again so there's quite a famous um, article written by the psychologist David Berman he released an article about the magic lantern theory in 1979 and that was the year of the Pope's visit to Knox so he was doing it uh, he was a I think he was a teacher in Trinity College Dublin so he was doing it specifically to kind of throw a spanner in the works of the Pope's visit to Knox in 1979 And he claimed that he had solved the whole thing. Uh, He claimed that the magic lantern was hidden in the schoolhouse, which was across the yard from the church. And I don't know why this was not mentioned before. If you look at maps from the time, there is a little schoolhouse about maybe, I don't know, like 15 metres from Mm -hmm. the wall of the church. And it would theoretically, to me anyway, looking on, it would theoretically look like a perfect place to (laughs) project this thing. And you could kind of do it a little bit uh, in a concealed way. Mm -hmm. And that's what Berman said. Paul Carpenter, who wrote this article that I'm talking about, he's not that convinced. Um, it's he, he feels like it is still a bit too far away and that it would be obvious, like it would be maybe easy to do, but not easy to do secretly, that everyone would just kind of look immediately to the window of the schoolhouse, you know, like, what's happening up there, right? Mm. <laughs> so he's not convinced by that either. There's all kinds of other reasons as well. Like um, there was other churches around that were like almost kind of shaped like amphitheaters where they were. They would have been perfect, like to hide a magic lantern. Why did you do mm. it? Why didn't you do it there you know there's all kinds of um so this is not by any means a a foregone conclusion Mm. um but Berman and a few other people have brought up another kind of contingent thing that to support this evidence and that is the priest so Berman claimed that it was the local priest who orchestrated all of this okay it's not to our next question like why why would anyone do this you know somebody had to have the money to get this thing and set it up secretly and kind of carry it off And also, yeah, to be bothered to trick people and to disguise it and to take it to this remote location and to keep it a secret and also to keep those people still ignorant about the existence of projectors subsequently. Like, I have a lot of questions about it. Also because, you know, you said, so let's say it's 15 meters distance away from the wall. I mean, you mentioned that it's still light at 8 p.m. in August in Ireland. Uh-huh. You would need a really powerful light in order to project, particularly that far. Um, and we're talking about like something that was fueled by oil, right? Um, I mean, even projectors right. now, like you have to make the, the room completely dark in order to get a proper effect from them. Very good point. And thank you for reminding me of this because this is crooks. Uh, it brings back to the fore the time it happened. Hmm. Carpenter notes that looking through the testimonies, people are talking about times way later than Hmm. this official time. That they're talking about when they got home and things like this. And from all these testimonies, it sounds like they were there in the middle of the night, not at 8pm. And it suddenly that casts a whole different light on this very insistent fact that it was daylight for most of this, Hmm. um, or sunset time anyway, because that was what came out in the church inquiry. And it is possible that the church, knowing that the magic lantern theory was a very kind of big possibility, that they actually really pushed that um, to to dismiss the magic lantern theory specifically, right? It's funny kind of time to choose half in the day and half in the night, you know, and yeah. I was wondering as well, like, because one of the witnesses was a farmer who was like a field away or something. And, you know, it would have to be a really powerful light in order for him to see it at that distance, particularly if it wasn't fully dark. Yeah, I don't think he would have. Personally, I don't think he would have. I don't think he would have seen an electric one, honestly, from that far away. Yeah. The the other thing is like, you know, say say that the church is going to send these investigators there. 
like the, the reason they mm. want to do that is they want credibility for their miracles, right? So if there if this was an outright hoax by someone who was like going mm. around with a with a with a lantern, like their interest their interest in having a miracle in knock may not be stronger than their interest, you know, not to fall to a hoax and uh, and not to sort of discredit the whole idea of miracles by by falling for something which was like an obvious trick. Absolutely. And then also, yeah. the, you know, all these theories kind of, they overlook the fact that people, uh, we have like a very long history of human beings exper experiencing things and reporting things like that, which, which can't necessarily be explained. Like lots of humans do have visions. So like th that is something that yeah. just happens to people and there's a very long recorded history of that. Yeah, and we'll get on we'll get on to that in a minute. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is a very, very murky thing. But we need to pause here for a moment because the alleged motivation, right, by some of the pro uh, proponents of the Magic Lantern theory isn't that Kavanaugh was trying to stage a miracle uh, per se mm -hmm. in order to like make Knock famous or anything. Because Father Kavanaugh was really, really opposed to the land war he was like famously in like conflict with the local leaders of the mm -hmm. land war, the local nationalists. And there had been a kind of chasm created locally with villagers who just weren't respecting the church or the church authority anymore and who were kind of choosing the land war over the, sorry, the, the land league mm. over the church. Right. So the theory here is that the magic lantern was a way to shock the villagers into seeing a sign uh, from God and to have them come back, to have them come back to the church, right? And start listening to the priest again. That this would have been, in his mind, um, like this pretty small scale kind of little little trick that he was pulling on, like, you know, I don't know, the local country folk, um, that got way out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's notable he didn't go to see it. They went straight to him when the, um, when the story came out. They, they ran straight to his house and he said, no. I will not go and see your foolish, superstitious things. So he didn't leave his house to see. It also means that he wasn't in the schoolhouse at that point, according to their testimonies. Mm. The testimonies are very varied, not very varied. Carpenter isn't so convinced by this either. According to Carpenter, the evidence for a magic lantern is actually pretty overwhelming. Okay. Um, like just there's so much different evidence um, for it but we don't really have any convincing evidence that it was Kavanaugh or that it was in the schoolhouse or certainly not that it was any kind of orchestrated thing now exactly what you say is kind of this other big part of it if the villagers had never seen a magic lantern before they certainly did in the weeks after this because that guy Dr. Lennon came and did all his tests and anything like that the villagers would have flocked to see actually taking out an actual magic lantern and projecting images on the wall. Mm. And that kind of brings up issues of memory here, right? Like how much were the memories of these people influenced by what they actually saw after the event? Um, if they had seen something on the wall, maybe exactly some kind of, you know, vision or something that maybe wasn't so clear. And then they saw... Um, images of human beings projected onto the wall a week afterwards, would they have come back to their memories and kind of described it in a new way? You know, did, did this affect them? Because memory is, is so central here, right? Like, 
you have this tiny village which is being inundated with journalists and the journalists are asking people to tell this story again and again and again and again and then you have these church commissions with bishops who like you know what the bishops want to hear in your mind as a villager who are sitting across from you saying what did you see and you have to describe it to them again in ways that you think that they'll like so it's almost like we can see the process of the villagers memories being crafted by the people around them. I, I would also be interested in, because you, you mentioned there were sort of two periods of inquiry into it, initially in the mm. immediate aftermath and then again in the 1930s. And um, yeah, like you're right, the way that memory works, um, it can be quite flexible and um, it, it definitely like ideas could be introduced or people could remember the story differently in the 1930s compared mm. to when they experienced it the first time. Uh, absolutely. Uh, we know so much more about that now, right? How leading questions, you know, can ac- literally create memories. It's not like they're fooling us. Mm-hmm. They actually create a new memory in our minds and that every time we remember something again, we recreate it. Um, so, you know, in this process, you can you can really see that. You can almost kind of see it happening in front of you. Um, there is also a problem that I would note with the Magic Lantern Theory there's too much variation in what the people remember seeing. So, for instance, you know, one of the boys says that there were angels around the lamb and mm. other, nobody else saw those angels. Um, mm. Everyone else said, oh, you no, know, maybe there were glittering lights. I don't know. Some people said the cross was on the altar. Some people said the cross was beside the altar. And I just feel like if it was a magic lantern, that would, you know, there would be some quite consistent descriptions of what it looked like. They were staring at it for two hours. You know, if the clock, if the cross was on the altar, I think that's something you'd remember. If there were angels there, you know, you wouldn't miss them, right? If it was a projector screen, <laughs> right? Um, so that's kind of problematic for me. That that makes me believe more that these are crafted memories uh, from something else. Um, I don't know. Either way, listen, this is so controversial. <laughs> this is so controversial <laughs> online. Um, so Carpenter notes that all of these devotional websites, like are very aware of the Magic Lantern theory and they quite specifically cite when they're talking about Nock that they cite things that would kind of poo-poo it. So things like that daylight thing, things like, oh, this all happened during the day. Um, You know, they never mention the Magic Lantern thing, but they kind of say stuff that would um, negate it. Okay. Um, They also say, like, very consistently, it did not flicker. The images did not flicker. (laughs) Okay. Um, Quite, you know, quite, like, desperately because that was one of the main pieces of proof. And actually, when I was just checking out the Knock Shrine Wikipedia page earlier on today, the line is in there. The statues did not flicker. Like, it's just this very innocuous seeming line. But like, obviously, that's been put there by someone with a vested interest in people not believing the Magic Lantern theory. Now, at the, at the same time, I found all of these really weird, spurious domain names with dena- domain names that sounded a little bit like Knock devotional websites so like um i don't know what they were called but they had like the word knock in them but like in weird ways and they were all devoted to like the magic lantern theory and they were all trying to debunk the sightings at knock by mentioning so it's like i'd say it's just one person i don't know but like there seems to be some (laughs) kind of battle going on online between pro and anti magic lantern theorists or pro devotional um you know theorism or whatever so i don't know i mean when you add that dimension to it it's a little bit like i don't know what to believe now actually like this seems a bit poisoned like this you know this whole discourse seems a little bit poisoned it's kind of sounds it's fascinating to think about a battle over like community memory that dates back over a century yeah. where yeah. you know you had this theory about what the what the witnesses saw and then they were insisting mm. they saw something else 
yeah, the, like you say, there's like this complexity introduced with a sort of underlying emphasis yeah. of, of different details in order to strengthen the case of one side or another. Yeah, and the potential fallout of mm. what would happen if this was actually proved. If this was proved definitively, what, you know, what would that do to Nock? Probably not much, honestly. It, it probably wouldn't have a huge effect on Nock. But, you know, it is a thing. Like, you know, there's a huge economy built around Nock. Anyway, listen, I just thought, you know, I, you can see now why I couldn't even bring this up in our last year's episode because like, there's too much to say about it. Um, but I think coming away from kind of looking at those uh, at that research, the thing I was left with a little bit was a bit of sadness, actually, no matter what the case, whether this was real, whether um, whether it was really a miracle, whether it was a magic lantern, whether it was mass delusion or um, just lights on the wall. It all seems, it seems like what happened in subsequent years was all just a bit cynical and it was kind of utilising the deepest held beliefs of these people you know the thing that these people who had very very little in the world the one thing that they kind of clung to with all their being you know their belief to use that or to play with it just kind of made me very sad the idea that somebody might have been doing that for political gain or even just afterwards doing it for economic gain even it's um it's a kind of cynicism to it that I hadn't really appreciated just the people who maybe might have been hurt or whose whose emotions were played with in a very unfair way uh, during that whole thing. Yeah, if, if, like if you tomorrow, Tim, saw a vision of mm. the Virgin Mary and it struck mm. you as like unshakably, you know, true. Real, the, yeah. The Virgin Mary actually came to you and spoke to you. It was a transformational experience. And then you had all these people coming to you and saying like that Egypt bumpkin Tim he was only looking at a magic yeah. lantern on a wall. <laughs> I mean, yeah. 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 And then, mm. yeah, it would be, it would be really, I'd be interested to know more about the lives of the people who sort of experienced these, this firsthand and what, what would, what it was like mm. for the community to suddenly become this focus of international interest. It's a fascinating one. And obviously I think the way the ethics of how we collect information and testimony over time has changed um, and similarly with, you know, this is sort of something that bedevils court cases and stuff. And there's a lot of review to do with how people are interviewed in, because of the, the mm. malleability of memory that we have been talking about. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating one. Yeah, it is. Uh, by the way, listeners, if you want to check out some of those sources yourself, you can find some of the witness statements uh, in a book from 1880, which you can find pretty easily online, called The Apparitions and Miracles at Knock by a guy called John McPhilbin. And also, I believe that there was a book written about this um, by Eugene Hines in 2008 called The Virgin's Apparition in 19th Century Ireland, which talks a lot about the land war context and the lives of those people at the time, uh, which I haven't read myself, so I don't, don't really know any more than that. Uh, but it got mentioned a lot, so uh, I'll mention that as well. All right, Naomi. Yes. Hit me with your with your last story. My final story. Okay, to round us off, my other story is about another mysterious Irish connection. Um, oh, okay. So basically, this came to light actually when recently enough, uh, the national leaders of the various EU countries met in Prague. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, they were meeting in Prague uh, for a big summit on top of the agenda was the discussion of the energy crisis, which, as most people know, is one of the biggest issues that Europe is dealing with this winter with really expensive energy costs. And there's all sorts of different proposals about how to deal with it. And one of them is mm. the idea of a gas cap. That means 
a number of different things depending on who's arguing for it but more or less ideas yeah. like could you somehow limit the price that's paid for gas say in the wholesale market or something like that like what electricity companies are paying for it for example is there a way to do that so anyway okay. uh, when the Latvian prime minister um, whose name is Christianus Karens when he arrived at the summit in Prague um, he stopped by the air, the journalists' area, uh, to take some questions from the press, and he was asked to comment about the gas cap idea. And Tim, I'm going to play this clip, and I'd like you to listen to it and just tell me what you think. I sent it to you there. Okay. Uh, a price cap on gas uh, is, uh, if that could be achieved, would be grand. Okay, right. Now I've actually seen this before. <laughs> this was this one was hard to miss. So the Latvian prime minister talking in what can only be described as a noticeable Irish accent. Yeah, pretty distinctive Irish uh, twang there. Yeah. So this was kind of funny. So yeah, I, I took the clip and posted it on Twitter, and it went kind of viral. And then it ended up ah, getting that's why reported. I've seen it before. <laughs> yeah, it, it ended up getting picked up in uh, in Latvia and the Latvian press like wrote about it. Like the people are fascinated with the apparently Irish accent of our prime minister. Oh, yeah. So it, it became a kind of a thing. And, you know, it was it was funny because a lot of people then they started to try to get to the bottom of what was behind this. Right. So they started off by looking into mm. the life story of Christiana's Karen's. He has been the Prime Minister of Latvia since 2019 and he's actually a linguist as well as a business person by profession which may explain why he has a particularly sensitive um, ear for accents. But there is an overseas connection with him. He was actually born in Delaware in the United States. So he was born in Wilmington. Huh. So he was kind of an American Latvian, actually. His parents had left Latvia during the Soviet occupation and they were living over there. And then he returned to Latvia and became a politician. He started a frozen food business and he uh, he founded a, a political party and and so it went. So yeah, the, he had a kind of, um, you know, you could imagine him having an American accent, but the Irish, sure. uh, the Irish triangle is like still unexplained, according to the biography, until I was speaking to one of Ireland's members of the European Parliament. So the politicians that are elected to represent Ireland in the European Parliament, there are 13 of them. And one of them has the surname Sean Kelly. Now, Karen's and Kelly both <laughs> begin with K. And so it happened... <laughs> don't tell me you have been doing a lot of surname sleuthing <laughs> <That's true. laughs> the last few weeks don't tell me okay go on sorry please i'm interrupting what's your guess what's your guess that the surname i'm curious to know what your guess is. are they related is this a latvian version <laughs> of kelly no they're not related no no okay. but there is a surname did they live in the same farmhouse like <laughs> <laughs> The, con the surname connection is that because both of their names start with K and they're both in the same political group, they sat next to each other in the European Parliament for 10 oh. years. Oh, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> so Christianus Karen sat next to Sean Kelly for 10 years. And the two of them actually became quite close friends. So I chatted to Sean Kelly about it and he told me about he how he and his friend Chris Jarens would go and grab a drink together and sometimes skive off events to go and have a pint and catch up uh, before attending later on. 
We sat alongside one another for the bones of 10 years, I would say. Okay. And uh, we had great chats. He's a good character. Good friend of mine, actually. Uh, Christianus Karins and Sean Kelly. So he was also head of delegation for Latvia. And I was head of delegation for Ireland, DPP. Yeah. So we sat together and we would have gone in bureau meetings. And occasionally we would say to another, uh, there'd be a function on that we're supposed to attend. We'd say... We'll skip the speeches now, we'll go for a little drink ourselves, and then we'll go and join them for the dinner. The friendship actually culminated in the Latvian visiting Killarney in County Kerry, where Sean Kelly is from. And the two of them actually walked the famous Gap of Dunlow through Killarney National Park on that visit. And I also walked the Gap of Dunlow with him. I brought the EPP over, the Bureau over to Killarney, the Hotel Europe. And uh, I insisted that they would have to have a few hours off to see Killarney. So we took, uh, we took boats directly from the hotel up the lakes. And then we walked down through the gap of the law. And then we got the Jarvis to bring us in back in again. So a I walked. classic route through Killarney National Park. Yes, exactly. So I would have spent two hours walking that with him. We'd have chatted about everything. So I can understand why he has a bit of a, hopefully a Kerry accent. <laughs> And some of the colloquialisms. Now, Prime Minister Karens was actually visiting Brussels for another summit this week, so I took a chance to ask him about it. It's uh, mutual beneficial both to the Western Balkans and, of course, to the European Union as a whole. Prime Minister Naomi O'Leary, Irish Times. Our readers have noticed that you have a slight Irish accent. Could you explain why that might be? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> Have you visited Ireland at all? I've visited Ireland. Yeah, and I, I wonder whether in recent years there's been any coming together more closely of Ireland with the Baltic states, do you think, due to the war? I know there was a joint declaration on sanctions, for example. Well, uh, certainly uh, Latvia-Irish relations are wonderful. We have a, a large expat community of Latvians living in, in Ireland. Uh, we have wonderful political relations. Um, and uh, if that has had some inadvertent effect on, on my English, well, so be it and good for that. Thank you very much. So there you have it, Tim. Oh, Naomi, that is adorable. <laughs> That's, actually... <laughs> That's actually adorable. It's like they were friends in, in class. It was like best friends yeah. who sat beside each other, you know, on, on the left-hand side of the classroom for like 10 years and just really, really got to know each other. Do you, me- do you remember <laughs> in school there were sometimes you know, people like that who were just like your classroom friend? They were like almost yeah. like a work colleague that, <laughs> that you hung out with while you were sitting down in the class. And you just like, you actually got to know each other in a strangely well way, like strangely <laughs> intimately because you just spent so much physical time together. Um, that, is, uh, that is adorable. I love this story. That's my favorite story of, of this story time <laughs> edition, I think. Um, yeah, we love it. And it's also a, another piece of evidence in favor of Hiberno English becoming dominant in Brussels. Yeah. Um, after the departure of Britain from the EU, which is, no, it's, it's, actually, it's actually genuinely a thing, Tim. Like, I met a girl mm. from Sweden lately, and um, mm. I was like, are, are you married to someone are Irish, or did you probably grow up in Ireland? And she was like, no, no, sure, sure, I just have loads of Irish friends, you know? I was like, what's going on? <laughs> <This is mad. laughs> just like extremely Irish-sounding Swede. But yeah, no, it's like, it's out there. Yeah, it's a thing. I've, I've noticed it myself, especially in the last few years, that when you have people coming on from, I don't know, from different countries who are speaking in English on English language media, that half of mm-hmm. them have Irish accents. And I, <laughs> I just thought that this must be like the fruition of like maybe a particularly 
a particularly like prolific year of student exchanges to Ireland or something. Maybe like <laughs> loads of people went on exchange, you know, exactly 10 years ago or something. Um, but but actually this, I mean, it's probably that as well, but this makes so much sense that they're just, yeah. when they are speaking English to native English speakers in an EU setting, they're speaking to Irish people a lot, actually, and moment, more and more yeah. now since Brexit. More and more, yeah. more and more. And yeah, we can't overlook actually what you mentioned, which is that like, the thing of going to Ireland to learn English is huge. And Mm. it's also actually even more like becoming more and more big because of the sort of visa situation now, which is that, you know, technically EU people need a visa in lots of circumstances to go to the UK and vice versa. Mm. So it's easier for loads of people, not, you know, internationally as well, to actually go to Ireland to learn English. It was a trend beforehand, but yeah, accelerating ever more since. Yeah, yeah. And this does happen like very quickly, right? Um, like you'll remember, Naomi, uh, I, mm-hmm. when I was a student, I studied in, in Switzerland for about nine months. I mean, not even a yeah. full year. But the French I learned was with a Swiss accent. It's not it's not like a different dialect or anything. It's just a, an accent. And when I moved to, to Paris, people were bowled over with the way <laughs> I spoke like a Swiss person. I mean, they would stop in their tracks and open their mouth. I mean, they were horrified, of course, because, you know, they're Parisians <laughs> and they're snobs. <laughs> Uh, but that's, you know, that's, a, it didn't take any longer than that, right? Nine months and I was speaking French, like, with a Swiss accent, right? Oh, yeah, it's totally thing. Mm. Yeah, my, my partner is not Irish, but totally gets, um, yeah, we've been asked, like, and where are you guys from in Ireland? And it's just assumed that we are. So, yeah, it off, yeah. <laughs> the plan is all coming together, Naomi, little by little. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We'll just be be, um, strategically placing Irish people on certain benches around the EU Parliament until the plan is completely done. (laughs) All right, listen, guys, I think that's absolutely loads uh, for this uh, this year's edition of our story time. Guys, have a great Christmas if you're celebrating Christmas. Have a great New Year. Absolutely. Yeah, enjoy enjoy the winter festivities of whatever kind you're celebrating relax oh my god i'm looking forward to hopefully getting some days off i could do with it and don't forget you know what's the absolute best way to relax to sign up to the irish passport patreon at (laughs) www.patreon.com forward slash the irish passport (laughs) (laughs) it's that time of year naomi yeah go for it and we're we're actually uploading loads of um loads of bonus content lately uh, there's a bunch of stuff like just one went up today actually a UN one and there's yeah they're like I've got a whole archive yeah. of stuff that I'm going to be uh, uploading soon so yeah check you it know, out Naomi um, put up a talk that she made recently at the IIEA um, I, I put up a, a, a very mm-hmm. amateur cooking video where I made barn bar brack <laughs> that was good that was good I saw that and I was like when are we going to have Tim on the TV presenting a cooking show? Well, it was great. Good question. I've been asking that question really since great. I was 21 years old, Naomi. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but we'll do stuff like that again. But we also have just loads and loads and loads of audio content uh, as well. Yeah, it's like 90 episodes or something now. Uh, at least, yeah. And especially our after show debriefs, which mm-hmm. they're almost like another episode in themselves. All right, that's plenty to keep us going, guys. Um, happy holidays of all sorts, like you said, Naomi, and Slán from me. Bye, everyone. Slán. One of my friends, who's a lady actually from Austria, I said, he's a B-O-N-L-O-X. And she said, what's that? I never heard of it. Oh, I said, you'll hear of it again. So now she's using it. She says to me, is he a B-O-N-L-O-X? Are you saying there's an Austrian MEP wandering around calling people a bollocks? Exactly. You'll see it happening. <laughs>